Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Anne Carson reads work by poet and dance critic Edwin Denby. To learn more from Carson about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Anne Carson. Hi, this is Anne Carson. I'm going to read some selections of Edwin Denby, uh, who was the world's best dance critic. He was born in 1903, actually in China, because his father was a diplomat. They moved to Europe and then to the United States, where he was educated in Detroit and Connecticut and Harvard. He didn't like Harvard. He quit and went to Europe. In Europe, he studied dance and received a diploma in gymnastics and made friends with Virgil Thompson, Aaron Copeland, Alice B. Toklas, Lottie Lenya, and Kurt Weill. He came back to the United States in 1936 and was eventually the dance critic of the New York Herald Tribune and other publications. He published also three small volumes of poetry, and was friends with Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, and other magical people of that time. So I'd like to read a selection of his dance criticism and then one of his sonnets. This is an essay called Against Meaning in Ballet. Some of my friends who go to ballet and like the entertainment it gives are sorry to have it classed among the fine arts and discussed, as the other fine arts are, intellectually. Though I do not agree with them, I have a great deal of sympathy for their anti-intellectual point of view. The dazzle of a ballet performance is quite reason enough to go. You see handsome young people, girls and boys with abounding or delicate animal grace, dancing among the sensual luxuries of orchestral music and shining stage decoration, and in the glamour of an audience's delight. To watch their lightness and harmonious ease, their clarity and boldness of motion, is a pleasure. And ballet dancers' specialties are their elastic tautness, their openness of gesture, their gaiety of leaping, beating, and whirling, their slow, soaring flights. Your senses enjoy directly how they come forward and closer to you or recede upstage, turning smaller and more fragile. How the boys and girls approach one another or draw apart. How they pass close without touching or entwine their bodies in stars of legs and arms. All the many ways they have of dancing together. You see a single dancer alone showing her figure from all sides deployed in many positions, or you see a troop of them dancing in happy unison. They are graceful, well-mannered, and they preserve at best a personal dignity, a civilized modesty of deportment that keeps the sensual stimulus from being foolishly cute or commercially sexy. The beauty of young women's and young men's bodies in motion or in momentary repose is exhibited in an extraordinarily friendly manner. When you enjoy ballet this way, 
you don't find any prodigious difference between one piece and another, except that one will have enough dancing to satisfy and another not enough. One will show the dancers to their best advantage and another tend to make them look a little more awkward and unfree. Such a happy ballet lover is puzzled by the severities of critics. He wonders why they seem to find immense differences between one piece and another, or between one short number and another, or between the proficiency of two striking dancers. The reasons critics give, the relation of the steps to the music, the sequence of the effects, the sharply differentiated intellectual meaning, they ascribe to dances, all this he will find either fanciful or plainly absurd. Has ballet an intellectual content? The ballet lover, with the point of view I am describing, will concede that occasionally a soloist gives the sense of characterizing a part, that a few ballets even suggest a story with a psychological interest, a dramatic suspense, or a reference to real life. In such a case, he grants, ballet may be said to have an intellectual content. But these ballets generally turn out to be less satisfying to watch, because the dancers do less ballet dancing in them. So, he concludes, one may as well affirm broadly that ballet does not properly offer a serious comment on life, and that it is foolish to look for one. I do not share these conclusions, and I find that my interest in the kind of meaning a ballet has leads me to an interest in choreography and dance technique. But I have a great deal of sympathy for the general attitude I've described. It is the general attitude that underlies the brilliant reviews of Théophile Gautier, the French poet of a hundred years ago, who is, by common consent, the greatest of ballet critics. He said of himself that he was a man who believed in the visible world, and his reviews are the image of what an intelligent man of the world saw happening on the stage. They are perfectly open. There is no private malice in them. He is neither pontifical nor popular. There is no jargon and no ulterior motive. He watches not as a specialist in ballet, but as a responsive Parisian. The easy flow of his sentences is as much a tribute to the social occasion as it is to the accurate and elegant ease of ballet dancers in action. His warmth of response to personal varieties of grace and to the charming limits of a gift, his amusement at the pretensions of a libretto or the pretensions of a star, his sensual interest in the line of a shoulder and bosom, in the elasticity of an ankle, in the cut of a dress, place the ballet he watches in a perspective of civilized good sense. Ballet for him is an entertainment, a particularly agreeable way of spending an evening in town, and ballet is an art. It is a sensual refinement that delights the spirit. Art for him is not a temple of humanity one enters with a reverent exaltation. Art is a familiar pleasure and Gautier assumes that one strolls through the world of art as familiarly as one strolls through Paris, looking about in good weather or bad, meeting congenial friends or remarkable strangers, and one's enemies too. Whether in art or in Paris, a civilized person appreciates seeing a gift and is refreshed by a graceful impulse. 
there is a general agreement about what constitutes good workmanship, and one takes one's neighbor's opinions less seriously than their behavior. Gautier differentiates keenly between good and bad ballet, but he differentiates as a matter of personal taste. He illustrates the advantages the sensual approach to ballet can have for an intelligence of exceptional sensual susceptibility and for a man of large sensual complacency. I don't mean that so orderly and respectable an entertainment as that of art is made for the susceptibilities of kittens or children, but consider how the enormous orderly and respectable symphonic public enjoys its listening, enjoys it without recognizing themes, harmonics, or timbre, without evaluating the style historically, or even knowing if the piece is being played as the composer intended. What do they hear when they hear a symphony? Why they hear the music, the interesting noise it makes. They follow the form and the character of it by following their direct acoustic impressions. Susceptibility to ballet is a way of being susceptible to animal grace of movement. Many people are highly susceptible to the pleasure of seeing grace of movement, who have never thought of going to a ballet to look for it. They find it instead in watching graceful animals, animals of many species that play, flying, swimming, racing, and leaping, and making gestures of affection toward one another, or watching in harmonious repose. And they find it, too, in seeing graceful young people on the street, or in a game, or at the beach, or in a dance hall. Boys and girls in exuberant health who are doing pretty much what the charming animals do and are as unconscious of their grace as they. Unconscious grace of movement is a natural and impermanent gift, like grace of features or of voice or of character, a lucky accident you keep meeting with all your life wherever you are. To be watching grace puts people into a particularly amiable frame of mind it is an especially attractive form of feeling social consciousness. But if ballet is a way of entertaining the audience by showing them animal grace, why is its way of moving so very unanimal-like and artificial? For the same reason that music has evolved so very artificial a way of organizing its pleasing noises. Art takes what in life is an accidental pleasure and tries to repeat and prolong it. It organizes, diversifies, characterizes through an artifice that men evolve by trial and error. Ballet nowadays is as different from an accidental product as a symphony at Carnegie Hall is different from the noises Junior makes on his trumpet upstairs or Marianne with comb and tissue paper sitting on the roof, the little monkey. You don't have to know about ballet to enjoy it. All you have to do is look at it, if you are susceptible to it, and the good many people evidently are. You will like spontaneously some things you see and dislike others, and quite violently too. You may be so dazzled at first by a star or by the general atmosphere, you don't really know what happened. You may, on the other hand, find the performance absurdly stiff and affected except for a few unreasonable moments of intense pleasure. 
But if you are susceptible, you will find you want to go again. When you go repeatedly, you will begin to recognize what it is you like and watch for it the next time. That way you get to know about ballet. You know a device of ballet because you have responded to it. You know that much, at least, about it. Even if nobody agrees with you, you still know it for yourself. That the composite effect of ballet is a complex one is clear enough. Its devices make a long list wherever you start. These devices are useful to give a particular moment of a dance a particular expression. The dancers in action give it at that moment a direct sensual reality. But if you watch often and watch attentively, the expressive power of some ballets and dancers will fascinate, perturb, and delight far more than that of others and will keep alive in your imagination much more intensely long after you've left the theater. It is this after-effect that dancers and ballets are judged by, by their audience. To some of my friends, the images ballet leaves in the mind suggest, as poetry does, an aspect of the drama of human behavior. For others, such ballet images keep their sensual mysteriousness abstract, unrationalized, and magical. Anyone who cannot bear to contemplate human behavior except from a rationalistic point of view had better not try to understand the exhilarating excitement of ballet. Its finest images of our fate are no easier to face than those of poetry, though they are no less beautiful. That was published in Ballet Magazine, March 1949, by Edwin Denby. I read one of his sonnets now. This is from a book called In Public, In Private, published 1948. It's called The Subway. The subway flatters like the dope habit for a nickel expending peculiar space. You dive in from the street, holing like a rabbit, roar up a sewer with a millionaire's face. Squatting in the full glare of the locked express, Imprisoned, rocked, like a man by a friend's death. Oh, how the immense investment soothes distress. Credit laps you like a huge religious myth. It's a sound effect. The trouble is seeing. So anesthetized, a square of bare throat, or the fold at the crotch of a clothed human being, you'll want to nuzzle it, crop at it like a goat. That's not in the buy. The company between stops offers you security and free rides to cops. That was Edwin Denby. This is Ann Carson. Thank you and good night. Nine Two Y's Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underbird Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Y's Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support Nine Two Y 
and our new digital programming. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.